And we are back. Welcome to Christianity Proper. This is our first podcast in a while. We've been only uploading sermons for uh, close to four months now, I believe. So it's good to be back and recording a new uh, podcast where we can talk about something today that we've talked about before, the power of the gospel in our What We Need Most series. We actually covered What We Need Most, the gospel, and we also brought this in with What We Need Most, biblical preaching. So we've talked about this a good bit. If you're familiar with the with the podcast, uh, some of what we say today is going to sound familiar, uh, may even sound repetitive or redundant, but this has become such a problem or it hasn't become such a problem. It remains such a problem that we must continue to address it. And there's a few things that have happened recently that just reiterate the problem. And we do want to address those things here today. And so welcome, uh, Christianity proper, proper doctrine, proper life. And we're glad to have you here with us. We hope that this is edifying and encouraging to you as a believer. If you're listening to this as someone who is a non-believer or you're on the fence about a lot of stuff, we pray that this brings clarity. Uh, we pray that you clearly hear the gospel today, uh, that God would bring you to salvation. But thank you for giving us some time today and listening to this podcast. So trusting the power of the gospel. And I'm going to go ahead and just lay out a few sections of scripture here that just make plain so that rather than throughout the podcast, me saying like, okay, do you see that? Do you understand this? That you, you see where the power is? The power is here and, and trying to just over explain things. I'm going to go ahead and start with scripture, which is going to make it plain. It's going to make it clear. And as I go through the rest of the podcast, talking about things that are unscriptural and unbiblical, because we've already done this at the beginning, I pray that the Spirit of God would just make it clear to all of us that we would say, okay, now we get it. Now we understand uh, what's going on here. So in Romans 1, verse 16, Paul plainly says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul says here plainly, the gospel itself, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. That's important. Paul doesn't put confidence. He doesn't say that the power is in his speech and that the power is in how he presents the message. Paul certainly doesn't say that the power is in strategies or tactics that he pulls off to get people to respond to the message or anything of that nature. He says the power is in the gospel. The gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation. He says something very similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Jump down to verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified or the cross of Christ, the word of the cross, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So it's pretty clear just from those two references there that Paul alludes to the gospel being the power of God unto salvation or uh, the power of God for salvation, uh, the power of God which brings life, which 
brings people to the wisdom of God. And then you add to that, uh, as far as, you know, what, what is it that people believe when they are saved? What What is the simple, straightforward gospel message that is to be believed in order for someone to, to be saved? Well, we can sum that up by saying repent and believe. Repent of your sin and believe. Place your faith in the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ. Believe that Jesus really is the Son of God, that he is the Savior, that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man, and that his work upon the cross atoned for, paid for, even your sins, not just other people's sins, not just the sins of people who call themselves Christians, but you specifically, myself specifically, because I have placed my faith in Jesus Christ, I can say, when Christ died upon the cross, I believe, well, what do you believe, Caleb? I believe that when he died upon the cross, he was making an atoning sacrifice for even my sins, that the wrath of God towards Caleb Folsom's sin was actually poured out upon Jesus Christ upon the cross. And so repent and believe. Uh, but in Romans chapter 10, Paul says, but what does it say? Romans chapter 10 verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near, near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So in a nutshell, believing that Jesus is who he says he is, that he was who he said he was, that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead, that he is a resurrected Savior. Lastly, uh, in 1 Peter First Peter chapter 1, we read this. Verse 22 of 1 Peter 1, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So the word of God is what brings about the new birth. In John 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And he even says, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So that begs the question, well, how are people born again? How does that new birth come about? How are people washed in the regeneration of the spirit? Through the living and abiding word of God, through the gospel. The gospel itself is the power of God and the salvation. The gospel itself, the spirit will so move upon somebody that they receive new eyes to see and new ears to hear. They receive a new heart that rejoices in and receives the gospel. Through that new birth, people are brought to faith in Christ Jesus. And so again, in a nutshell, we say repent and believe. Well, what does repent and believe mean? Repent of your sins, turn away from the life that you're living, and believe. Place your faith in the person of the finished work of Jesus Christ. There is power in the gospel. How are souls saved? Whether you're a preacher or just a Christian that you try, you do your best to tell people the gospel at work, uh, in your in your home, as you're out and about in the town, and, and you say to yourself, "Well, how do I get people to respond to the gospel?" Well, that's the that's a question that could get us into a lot of trouble. But the right the right response to that question is trust God, trust the gospel. Trust the power of God, which works through the gospel, right? We don't get people to respond to the gospel. We are charged to preach the gospel, to share the gospel, to teach the gospel. 
we are charged to tell others about Christ and his authority over all creation. God is the one who oversees the drawing men to salvation. God is God the Father is the one who draws to the Son, who opens blinded eyes. Uh, the Spirit of God is the one who washes people in regeneration, uh, giving them new life. Our responsibility is not to get people to respond. When we do think that it's our responsibility to get people to respond, that's where we get ourselves into trouble. And many times when we stop to think about some of our tactics, when we stop to think about some of our strategies and some of our tricks that we use to get people to respond, we do those things because we don't actually trust the power of the gospel to save. We sometimes think that we can make it easier for people to respond to the gospel. We sometimes think we have to make Jesus and the gospel more relevant for people to like want to respond. Uh, sometimes we think that we just need to try to make it as easy as possible so that we get the highest number of converts. Sometimes we just think we've got to come up with a plan to get more people to respond. We've got to take it into our own hands. How can we get the most number of people to respond to a gospel presentation? Sometimes we oversimplify things into, well, say this prayer and you're saved. Ask him into your heart and you're saved. Give your life to Jesus and you're saved. And none of that, none of those examples are the gospel. And so at this point, I'll say, if, if you are familiar with the podcast or if you're familiar with me and, and you might not even be a fan of the podcast or my ministry and you might be thinking, Caleb, you say stuff like this all the time that that's not the gospel, but I just believe that it is the gospel. When people do that, they really are being saved. So let me say this. If someone has repented of their sin and they genuinely have faith in Christ Jesus and whatever church service that they are at, that preacher or one of their friends or somebody tells them, say this prayer after me. Yes, that person is saved, but they are saved in spite of the fact that they prayed that sinner's prayer. Or at the very least, they, they're definitely not saved because they prayed the prayer. They're saved because they've been born again and they placed their faith in Jesus Christ. That's why they're, that's why they're saved. The prayer is just something that they did in that service or they did as they were led, as they were led to do. But there was no saving power in that prayer. If somebody asked Jesus into their heart, there is no saving power in asking Jesus into your heart. I want to be clear on that. Biblically speaking, there is no saving power by somebody asking Jesus into their heart. There is, there's no saving power when we tell somebody, well, just give your heart to Jesus. That's, that's not the gospel. The power is in the gospel. The power is not in our man-made strategies or traditions that we have developed and we have come up with. And I, I will say this. I don't believe, um, maybe, I, maybe I don't know enough about it. Maybe I, maybe I shouldn't say this according to some other people. But at this point in my studies and my research, I don't think that any of these traditions came out of a, a bad, evil, wicked place. I don't think people were sitting around thinking, how can we start to deceive people? How can we start to trick people? I do think it, it, it came out of a, a desire to get more responses to the gospel. 
And so you could say, well, that's not a bad thing. Somebody who wants to see more people be saved and profess faith in Christ, surely that's not a bad thing. Of course it's not. But it is bad and it is misguided when we stop trusting in the power of the gospel to save and we take matters into our own hands. And that's why I said, when we ask that question, how do we get people to respond positively to the gospel? How can we get more people to respond positively to the gospel? I actually would say that we don't even necessarily need to be asking those questions because the, the question to ask isn't how do we get more people to respond or how do we get people to respond? The question to ask is what has God commanded us and what has God taught us about how the gospel works? God has commanded us to go and make disciples. God has commanded us to go and proclaim the gospel. And he has also told us how the gospel works. His word does not return void. His word accomplishes the exact work that he desires for his word to accomplish. And we need to trust that. We need to trust him. We need to trust and have faith in the fact that God will do with his word and God will do with the hearts of man what he desires to accomplish. And we need to rest in that. If we desire to see more souls saved, we need to pray earnestly, God, deal mercifully with sinners. Continue to draw men and women to salvation. Continue to draw your children to their Savior that they may see, that their eyes may be open, and they would see that their ears would be open and they would hear that their, that their hearts would be uh, made flesh, that they would receive and believe the gospel. And we pray those things and then we preach the gospel trusting that God hears us. God is bringing people to salvation. Christ is the good shepherd. He's not going to leave any of his sheep behind. We know that from scripture. Christ knows exactly whose are his. We preach and proclaim the gospel trusting that God will accomplish his good and perfect will as his gospel goes out. We do not need to take matters into our own hand because when we do, we start to say things like, we need to make it as easy as possible for people to get saved. When we say that, we're not trusting God. God didn't ask us to make his gospel easier to digest. God didn't ask us to make his word, anything in his word, easier to digest. But when we say that we need to make it as easy as possible, what we're actually saying is we can come up with a better way than God came up with so that more people can get saved. You say, oh, Caleb, no, that's being too harsh. That's not what people are saying when they, when they bring stuff like that up. They, they just want more people to respond to the gospel, right? But when we make up our mind to come up with a strategy or to come up with a plan that's going to make it easier for people to get saved or to make it um, seem less intimidating, which is easier. And that's why I wrote that down. I, I, don't, I don't know how many people would just come right out and say that. Well, we just want to make it as easy as possible. I know that there are many that would say that. Um, but I also know that there are others who would maybe try to stay away from that language. But that is what we're doing. When we, when we say we want as many as possible, we need to make it as easy as possible. What we're actually saying is, we see the gospel in the word. We see how God has told us his gospel works, but we can make some improvements. We can outdo the numbers that God is giving us right now if, if we change some things, if we implement some strategies. 
when we say we need to make the gospel more relevant, what we're saying is, well, we can make an improvement there. The gospel, the way that it's presented in the Bible, just doesn't seem relevant to people today. So we need to repackage it for today's generation. We need to make the gospel more relevant. We need to update it. We need to make it seem uh, easier to connect with uh, for this generation. What we're actually saying is, okay, God, we're here to make some improvements on your gospel because we want some better results. When we tell people, say this prayer and you'll be saved. Ask Jesus into your heart and you'll be saved. Give your heart to Jesus and you'll be saved. Whether we like it or not, at the end of the day, biblically speaking, we are giving people a false gospel. We might not like to hear that. We might not like to be confronted with that. I know that there was a time in my life where I, I didn't like being confronted with that because that's how I was raised. That's the kind of church I grew up in. But there is no way that you could look at Scripture and what God tells us in his word and come to the conclusion, say this prayer and you're saved. Ask him into your heart and you're saved. There is no way that you could look at Scripture and then bring those topics up and say, yeah, that's an accurate presentation of the gospel. No, it's not. No, it's not. In fact, when we tell people, say this prayer and you're saved, do this and you're saved, ask him into your heart, give your heart to Jesus and you're saved, we're actually encouraging people to put the spotlight on themselves and what they are doing and then trust in that for their salvation, which is why we come across so many people that when you ask them, how do you know you're saved? They don't say because of Christ. Because of Christ and his finished work upon the cross, that's how I know that I'm saved. Here's what they say instead. Well, a few years ago, I got down on my knees at the altar and I, I prayed a prayer and asked Jesus into my heart and that's how I know that I'm saved. Well, a few years back, uh, I was having a conversation with a buddy of mine and he shared his faith with me. And you know, I just bowed on my knees right there. And I, I gave my heart to Jesus right then and there. Uh, I'm, I made Jesus Lord of my life right there. Guys, that should concern us. And honestly, that should break our hearts because when people answer the question that way, what they're actually saying is, I know that I'm saved because of something I did. That's the anti-gospel. That's anti-Christ because we're encouraging people to put their faith in themselves. The gospel, the good news is the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus and what he has done. How do we know that we're saved? Because Jesus is who he says he is. He is the perfect spotless son of God who laid down his life as the lamb, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And he laid down his life as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of all who believe, all those who have been given to him by the father. And when he laid down his life upon the cross, he said, it is finished. And he was buried, but three days later he arose. And he has now risen, ascended, and seated at the right hand of the Father. And he is interceding for all those who are his through faith. Why are we saved? Because Jesus Christ is our perfect Savior. Not because of anything I've done, or you've done, or we have done collectively as human beings and as the body of Christ, we are saved. Our confidence must come from Christ 
in Christ alone. But when we teach people, well, because you did this thing, you're saved, that encourages them to put their faith in themselves and in their works, in their obedience. I know that I'm saved because I go to church, because I pray to prayer, because I give tithes. And again, I know you may hear this and you say, Caleb, I just don't know how much I agree with that. All I'm asking you to do at this point is please think about it. Study the scriptures. Ask yourself the question. Prayerfully ask yourself the question. Okay, if I tell somebody to say this prayer and that means they're saved, am I accurately representing the gospel? Am I truly sharing the gospel with them if I just tell someone, pray this prayer and you're saved? Or should I say repent and believe because that's what scripture says that we need to turn from our sin and believe. Just ask yourself that question. Ask yourself, is my is my church, is my pastor accurately presenting the gospel when he tells people because they raise their hand in a church service and because they walk down to the front of the church at the, at the end of the service that now they're saved because they raised their hand and said they wanted to be saved. Is that really what we're told in scripture? Is that really the gospel? And so... To close out this short edition of Christianity proper, because I did want this one to be very direct and, and, and to the point, as we're getting back into the swing of things, I figured I wouldn't start out with another hour, hour and a half episode, but um, I Googled, just for fun, I Googled how to have a successful altar call, because some of you also might say, well, well altar, calls aren't altar calls aren't necessarily bad. Saying the sinner's prayer isn't necessarily bad, and I've covered that. I don't, I don't think that those things are inherently evil, but I do think a lot of deception, and I do think a lot, a lot of evil results have come from these things. I googled how to have a successful altar call, and hopefully, this will help clarify for those of you who may be on the fence why I and so many others believe that altar calls saying a prayer, asking into your heart and all of that stuff is so misguided and is so dangerous in our Christian culture today. I'm going to read some stuff that I found from the first two, just the first two things that popped up on Google when I, when I um, typed in how to have a successful altar call. So the first one is an article from the Global Network of Evangelists. And the quote at the top of this article, as an evangelist, I have given over 2,000 altar calls and I have led over 2 million people in a salvation prayer. Here are some of the secrets that I have learned. So right out of the gate, numbers. Numbers are thrown out to get your attention. 2,000 altar calls with 2 million responses. Oh, wow, I want to be like that guy. I want to have lots of responses to the, to the call of the gospel, to the call of salvation. What are, what are the secrets? What are the secrets that he has learned, right? I haven't even gotten to the article yet. I've given over 2,000 altar, call, altar calls. Okay, fine. You give altar calls. I've led over 2 million people in a salvation prayer. What even is that? And again, at this point, you might say, Caleb, you are just so nitpicky. No, that's a serious question. I would love for you to answer it. What is a salvation prayer? What is that? 
Where did it come from? Where did it originate? Who came up with a salvation prayer? And if somebody prays a salvation prayer, does that guarantee that they're now saved? Notice he didn't say, I've led over 2 million people to Christ. He literally says, I've led over 2 million people in a salvation prayer. And then he says this, here are some of the secrets I have learned. This entire article is written in such a way to say, if you are a pastor who wants better responses, if you're an evangelist who wants better responses to your altar calls, let me share some secrets that I've learned. You know what that's doing for the preacher? That's encouraging the preacher not to trust the power of the gospel, not to trust the power of the preaching of God's word, but rather to trust in these secrets and these tactics that this evangelist who's had over 2 million salvation prayers is going to share with you. There are no secrets, folks. There are no secrets, brothers and sisters in Christ. The power of salvation, the power of God unto salvation is in the gospel. We preach and we teach and we proclaim and we trust God to bring the increase. Two of the things that he shared in this article, he says, always give an altar call. How is that a secret? I'm not going to nitpick too much here, but honestly, I'm Always give an altar call, okay? Start with the end in mind. You should always have the end goal in mind that you are going to get people to come to the altar. So preach with that in mind. Those are the first two. He goes on to, um, to mention, tell your audience where you are going. So the point of decision should not come as a surprise. Often in the middle of the sermon, you should share a testimony about a man or a woman who gave his or her life to Jesus. Then say, in just a few minutes, I'm going to give you a chance to make a decision to follow Jesus. Tell your audience that the invitation is coming. So all of this is about preparing the audience, coaching the audience while you preach, right? Coaching the congregation, preparing them for the decision that's at the end. This article is everything, is everything that angers me about the modern landscape of, of Christian culture. This is how we think salvation works. People are marked as a good evangelist or a good pastor based upon how they can move people. If the preacher gets a lot of people on the altar, he's a great preacher. If the preacher or the evangelist can make people cry when he wants them to cry, make them laugh when he wants them to laugh, and get them on the altar when he wants them on the altar, man, that's a powerful preacher right there. You need to get him to come speak at your church. We need to practice discernment. Could God use a man like that? And could God bless a man in such a way that people are always responding to, uh, to the sermons that flow from that man's pulpit? Yes, but the power is still from the word of God and the power is still from God. We need to practice discernment. Could it happen? Yes. But could it also be that when a speaker has results wherever he goes. That he is someone who has practiced and has become very good at managing the crowd and bringing about a particular result. And that he's using the power and the wisdom of the world and the power and wisdom of man to accomplish his goals. Yes, absolutely. That could be so. And articles like this prove that that is the most common method of evangelism, of winning souls in the world today. How can I 
How can I coax people into a decision? How can I manipulate people into a decision? That's not trusting in the power of God. That's not trusting in the power of the gospel. That's coming up with our own schemes and tactics in order to bring about the desired results. Next, he goes on to say, you've got to bring people to a decision point. Give Number six, give clear explanations. Next, be specific in what you're asking people to do. Aim for 100% participation in the altar call. So your goal should be, your goal should be to get every single person in attendance down on that altar. That's the whole point. I'm going to move to the next article now so I don't kill too much time. The next article starts out, this is the, again, I just Googled how to have a successful altar call. And this is the first and second articles that popped up. This one is from pastormentor.com. So a website that's specifically for mentoring pastors, uh, teaching pastors. It says maybe your church is one of the nine out of 10 churches that aren't leading people to Jesus. Now, again, not to nitpick too much, but right out of the gate, I know that this article is just to encourage you to do more altar calls and to try to get more people to respond because if any church has a pastor who preaches the word, the gospel is going to be shared. If that pastor is faithfully preaching the word and honoring God with his shepherd, the, the gospel is going to be going out. Any, any church where the gospel goes out, God is working, God is moving, God is sanctifying his people. And if non-believers come to that church, it could very well be that God will lead those souls to salvation. But maybe your church is one of the nine out of 10 churches that aren't leading people to Jesus. And, and there's no research to back that up. He just claims maybe your church is one of the nine out of 10 that aren't leading people to Jesus. And then he says this, would you like to be in the 10% of churches that are seeing growth by salvation? Again, the only way, really the only way a church grows numerically, the true church is through salvation. We don't really grow numerically unless souls are being saved. Now, yes, families in the church can start to have babies. And those babies are added to the church body, you could say. But until those babies come to, to faith in Christ and are born again and believe, then the true church has not really grown numerically. We just have babies in the church. I, I, I know, I trust that you understand what I'm saying by that. So even that sentence is kind of nonsensical. Would you like to be in the 10% of churches that are seeing growth by salvation? How else is a church going to see growth? Hopefully the church only grows through salvations, right? Here's this point though. If so, if you want to be one of those churches that are growing through salvation, here's what you got to do. You must, you must master how to give a clear and compelling invitation to receive Christ. Now that might sound good at the outset. You might say, oh, well, that's, that makes sense. A pastor needs to be good at giving a clear, compelling gospel presentation, but that's not what he said. He said a clear, compelling invitation to receive Christ. And what he is talking about is the altar call. He's not talking about sharing the gospel because the rest of the article is how to have effective altar calls. So he says, you must master. That's a lot of pressure, right? You've got to master the altar call. You must master how to give a clear, compelling invitation to receive Christ. We have seen over 21,000 people come to Christ since we started our church 27 years ago. Again, numbers. It's a numbers game. If you want the results that we are getting, let me share with you the secrets of my success. And that's exactly what he does here. He goes on to say in that article, he shares exactly what he encouraged people 
to pray in his church in one of his latest sermons. Number one, he doesn't encourage them to repent and believe. He encourages them to answer the question, do you want God to be merciful to you today? Okay, so right there out of the gate. It's not repent and believe. It's not be saved. It's do you want God to be merciful to you today? And then he says, I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer with me. You can pray it quietly under your breath, or you can sort of repeat my words in your head. Or you could just say in your heart, God, that's what I'm praying right now. So again, he's putting all the emphasis on the prayer. He's encouraging the people to focus on the prayer. It doesn't even matter how you pray it, as long as you pray it. Pray it in your head. Pray it out loud. Tell God that this is what I want to pray right now. And here's the prayer. Lord Jesus, I want to experience your mercy today. I believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for my sins. I admit I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and I'm inviting you to be mine right now. Come into my life. Forgive my sin. Live in me as my leader from now on. I believe you are a God who is rich in mercy. Amen. So I'll give credit where credit is due. In the prayer, he does mention, forgive me of my sins. In the prayer, he does say, I believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for my sin. He doesn't mention the resurrection, but he does say that I admit Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for my sin. I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And then he says, I'm inviting you to be mine right now. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. Live in me as my leader from now on. I think we would all agree at the very least that's it is kind of weakly worded. And you might think that I'm nitpicking and that's fine, but that's pretty weakly worded. But even if that was spot, I mean, even if the prayer was just word for word what, what Paul said in Romans, even if even if he said, pray this today. I believe that Jesus is Lord. I believe that God has raised him from the dead. I believe my sins are forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. I would still have an issue with this. And here's why. He told the congregation, pray this prayer with me. You can pray it under your breath. Repeat the words, pray it in your mind, pray it in your heart, or just tell God, that's what I want to pray right now. And he goes on to tell them, if you pray that prayer, your, your entire eternity has been changed. Did you catch that? He didn't tell them, if you have repented and believed in Christ Jesus, your eternity has been changed. He said, if you prayed that prayer, your entire eternity has been changed. The Bible says that all things have now become new for you and that the angels are throwing a party for you up in heaven right now. I hope and I pray that all of us see the problem, the unbiblical, unscriptural nature of teaching such things. To look someone in the eyes or to look out into a crowd if you're a pastor looking out upon a congregation and to say, because you said a prayer, your eternity is changed. Because you said a prayer, you're saved. That's a big problem. The most famous verse in all of scripture, John 3, 16, Jesus says, all who believe will be saved. All who believe will have eternal life. They will never perish. They have eternal life. And this might sound petty, and perhaps it is, but if we're being as simplistic as we possibly can, Jesus doesn't say all who say a prayer of salvation will never perish. That all who believe, it really is that simple. When we encourage people that 
because you said a prayer, because you asked Jesus into your heart, because you gave your life to Jesus, because you gave your heart to Jesus, we're actually complicating the gospel. In our efforts to make it easier or to make it more simplistic, we're actually diluting it and watering it down. And worse yet, we're complicating it and making it harder for people. But again, the my main point here is when we when we practice these things, we're encouraging people to put the spotlight upon themselves rather than Christ. Because you said a prayer, because you asked Jesus into your heart, because you did this, you're saved. That's the anti-gospel. It's all of Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. If you're someone listening to this now and you've been trusting in your own righteous deeds, your own Christian activities or whatever else, and you haven't repented of that and placed your faith in Christ and his finished work alone, repent and believe the gospel. Follow Christ. There is freedom in Christ. Freedom from your own pursuits to justify yourself through your righteous deeds. Freedom from the, the law and the weight of, of perfect obedience that is weighing you down and drowning you. There is freedom. Those whom the Son sets free are free indeed. Christ has freed us from the burden and the weight and the guilt of sin. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are free from sin. We're free from the penalty of sin. We're free from the burdens and the and the, the cares and the weights of trusting in our own self-righteousness, of trying to live a good life in our own by our own merit, by our own efforts. It can't be done. Give it up. Repent and believe. Turn to Christ. So we're back. <laughs> we picked up really right where we never even left off because I think in almost every episode of Christianity Property, property Christianity Proper thus far, that at, in some way, shape, or form, the true gospel has come up. And so here we are again. Trust the power of the gospel. There's an event coming up in a few weeks that there's a lot of training and prep work going in, but but also I, I know that there's so much going on behind the scenes, so much money that was poured into this, so much, uh, so many strategies strategies that have been poured into this, and it really looks like this is going to be an entire event that's just getting people to make a decision, getting people to come forward and sign a card and say that they made a decision for the Lord. I pray and I pray and I pray that there will be genuine conversion and genuine salvation as a result of this. But I also know that there are many churches and pastors who do not preach the truth. They are full of false doctrine, full of deceit that are behind this, that are pushing this. And so I have great concern. I know that there's even a, a something being done here with, with the way that, that people go forward at the end of the service and that there's a little bit of manipulation going on there. And it's very sneaky. Um, guys, We've got to trust the power of the gospel. If God is able to create the world in six days, if God is able to save wicked and sinful man through the death of his son, if God is able to raise the spiritually dead through the power of the spirit, then he is capable of accomplishing what he wants to accomplish, what he wants to accomplish with the gospel. It is a great thing to have a zeal to see souls saved. It is a terrible thing for that zeal to become an excuse for us to try to save souls. We don't save the souls. It's a terrible thing 
for that zeal to turn into us trying to bring about our own results. It's a beautiful thing. It's a godly thing to desire the salvation of the lost. It's terrible when we start to be the ones to try to convert the lost and we try to regenerate people. And I think that's what we see a lot of. I could go on. Um, I think the point has been made. Romans 1, Romans 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Peter 1. Those were the scripture references that I read earlier. Uh, don't be ashamed of the gospel of, of Christ. It's the power of God and salvation. Those who hear it will either think that it's foolishness or they'll believe that it's the power of God and salvation. But God is the one who calls. God is the one who draws. Uh, and so those with ears to hear, they will hear the voice of their shepherd and they will follow him. Uh, those who are born again are born again through the imperishable seed of the word. And so we trust God. Um, so thank you for listening. I pray that we would consider all of these things, that we would consider them uh, carefully, that we would be diligent in our studies. I pray that this has been an encouragement that has been um, uh, edifying for you to listen to. If you have enjoyed it, uh, if you think others need to hear it, I would ask that you share, at the very least, officially follow us or like us on whatever podcast app that you use. That does help us out. But share this. Um, if you think it needs to be heard, reach out to me anytime. 912-339-4211. would love to hear from you, even if it's a disagreement or you're upset about something that has been said. We would love to hear from you. Uh, praise God for what he is doing and accomplishing through his word and through his people. And, uh, and that's our prayer. Christianity proper. Uh, proper doctrine, proper life. May God be glorified in all things. And uh, we hope that you'll be hearing from us again soon. Have a great day.